Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and visiting instructor at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, I'll be speaking with Joe Jackson. Joe previously held the Mina Hohenberg Darden Endowed Professorship in Creative Writing at Old Dominion University and has a long career as a journalist and nonfiction writer. His previous works include Dead Run, The Shocking Story of Dennis Stockton and Life on Death Row in America, and Atlantic Fever, Lindbergh, His Competitors, and The Race to Cross the Atlantic. We'll be talking about his most recent book, Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary, which came out with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2016, and in 2017, won the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me, Steve. To begin, why don't you first just tell us about yourself? What path did you take to writing professionally, and why did you get into investigative and historical nonfiction specifically? Well, um, I was... I don't know if I'm if I was traditional or not. I kind of bumped around. I think um, um, when I was in, I always liked reading. I always liked um, writing. I was on the student newspaper in high school, and when I was um, in college at Florida State, I was um, both a psychology and a um, and a an English major. <clears throat> and while there, and a little bit after graduation, I was a um, suicide counselor. And so I was always very interested in, in what make pe- makes people tick. But I also liked writing. So I um, I went to, I got an MFA in creative writing um, at Arkansas, where um, I studied under one of the um, one of the original beats, a guy by the name of John Clellan Holmes, who was kind of the biographer of of, of his buddies um, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and those guys. And um, and after I got out, I wanted to work in newspapers and um, and magazines, and I ended up in a, um, in um, a magazine for a little while, and then that went under, and then I. Um, Started with um, a newspaper over here in Norfolk, Virginia, <clears throat> for for where for about a dozen years I was um, I was a beat reporter, um, cops and courts, and then I became an investigative reporter, and then I became a death row reporter. And um, after I um, spent time on a case where a fellow that we were pretty um, pretty sure was innocent um, was executed, and he asked me to um, be a witness at his. Ex- at his execution, I decided I was going to write a book about it. And that was my, that was my first book. And then after that, I um, kept writing books. So, And what brought you to the story of Black Elk in particular? How'd you get interested in the Northern Plains and in the man himself? Well, I think one thing you take away from being a beat reporter is that, you know, you're always, as a writer, you're always looking for the next story. And, um, and I think you start to, um, I think you start to, to get a feel instinctively for, um, unfinished business in your last story, because that will lead to your next story. And, um, and so I had written a book also for, uh, for our Strauss and Giroux about, um, 
about the um, about the air race that made um, Charles Lindbergh famous, and, and how I how I how I got started doing that was that it was um, the Olympic years. I started thinking, why are we such a competitive competitive society? Um, I didn't really want to write about the winner. I wanted to write about the losers, and and um, I wrote about the um, air race that made Lindbergh famous. But what that book ended up really being about was the way that American society creates and then destroys its secular saints and heroes. And then I was thinking, well, what 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 does it take for a um, for some for society to consider somebody a a true saint or a true a true holy person, a true holy man. And I first thought about writing a biography of Thomas Merton, but I was looking and somebody had um, written a pretty uh, well-received biography of Merton. So that was out. And so I was looking around and I remembered that when I was in school, one of my favorite books was Black Elk Speaks. Um, And, um, and at the end of the 20th century, a bunch of theologians had been asked, who are the most influential American holy men of the 20th century? Um, and several had said that they considered Black Elk the only really true bona fide holy man that, um, that the United States had pr- produced in the 20th century. So, um, so I started looking and, and, you know, and I already knew about Black Elk Speaks. So I started looking and there was a lot of stuff on him. He had, um, he had 30 days worth of interviews. He had, um, a huge ream of, um, oral, oral interviews with, um, the guy he, um, co-wrote Black Elk Speaks with John Nyhart, which um, offered a window into his mind. I mean, it was a, it was, um, it was fascinating psychologically. And, um, and so that was what led me to, to Black Elk. Um, the fact that I was able to peek into his minds um, so, um, so closely and that um, society considered him a holy man. I just found that fascinating. So this book is a biography, and I think that it makes sense to start at the beginning of Black Elk's life and just kind of go from there. So can you first tell us a bit about the context of his early years, of his childhood? Who are the Lakota as a people, and what was the social and political setting of the Northern Plains in the mid-19th century when he was born? Well, he was born in 1863, and he was born in in the Powder River country, which um, for um, for the Lakota, I mean, we usually call them the the, the Northern Sioux, um, um, which for the Lakota were the um, was kind of like the promised land for the um, for the Israelites. They had been looking for great hunting grounds and an area that um, you know was kind of away from um, the. Um, um, the steady encroachment of white society, and um, when um, when Black Elk was born in 1863, he um, the Powder River country was pr- still pretty pristine. I mean, the um, white society hadn't really hadn't really um, you know mowed through it yet, like it had through the Southern Plains, and um, but there were. There were rumblings of um, of uh, kind of distant th- 
under the um, in 1862, the year before Black Elk was born. Um, um, the Bozeman Trail was um, the Bozeman Trail was established. Well, actually, gold was established was um, discovered in um, in Montana, and then. Um, so that was always like the death knell for the for for natives because I mean if there was going to be gold then there were going to be white settlers, and then in 1864, the year after Black Elk was born, um, the Bozeman Trail was was established, which was basically the path from the south for um, for gold prospectors and then you know settlers came and and army forts came and and at that point you um you began to have the um the classic conflicts between the army and the set the the army and the and the indians so he was born he was born right at the end of the um last three years of the northern plains sioux he was also born into a family where his father was a powerful medicine man, and his second cousin was um, was um, not sitting bull, um, crazy horse. Who was kind of who was who was in many ways the the Lakota thought of him, and he thought of himself as kind of as a kind of a holy warrior. So what was Black Elk's childhood like then? How did everything you just described, how did it shape his earliest years? Well, I mean, he was he was born into conflict. I mean, his um even though um he himself didn't see a lot of conflict until age twelve when he was in um when he was in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, his father was. And um and his father had um, um, participated when he was still very young. His father participated. This was in um, December of 1866. Um, his father participated in what was known as the Fetterman ma- Massacre. Um, um, the, this was outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, and um, at um, one of the one of the forts along the Bozeman Trail and um and the Sioux and the Cheyenne pretty much wiped out um um Sioux, the, the natives call it the Battle of the Hundred Slain but it was about they they killed somewhere between 80 and 90 um uh US cavalrymen and um and during the battle Black Elk's father was severely wounded in his leg. Um, we don't ever really know what happened, but um, but he would be lame for the for the rest of his life. And um, and you know every every native male, I mean, part of his responsibilities were was to um, was to feed his family. So that was. Um, that was severely cut into. So Black Elk would feel that um, from um, from his childhood. Luckily, you know, his father was also a respected medicine man, which mean, means that he was a counselor to the tribe, and he was also, you know, it's also like a job. So, um, and and all during his um, 
preteen years, he um, there was talk of conflict. I mean, the first the, um, the first years of his life were took place during what was called Red Cloud's War. The only um, the only war Red Cloud was a um, was a Lakota chief, and he um, and Red Cloud's War was the only native conflict in which the natives won. And um, and the Sioux, the Northern Sioux, were um, um, kind of helped single them out for repercussions down the line by the U.S. Army. But at the same time, it established them as a force to be feared. So, um, so I mean, he was, you know, he, he, he was born into kind of a high-status family, but it, um, and it was a, um, it was a, good world for them but it was a world which all of them feared was going to end and they could see the buffalo um herds diminishing so it was like for the first 15 years of black elk's life there was always this pressure that they could be wiped out that was the talk he always heard around him and it's within this period of his life that he experiences the great vision which would alter and shape the course of much of the rest of his life. So can you describe in uh, uh, some detail that vision and how he and those around him interpreted it? Well, he was nine and he, um, he fell into a coma for about 11 days. And um, of course, it's always hard to interpret what, um, it's always hard to diagnose historically what somebody what somebody's disease is, but it but it seems to have been um, as best as I can tell, and other people um, have, have um, said it seems to have been about of um, uh, childhood meningitis, and he um, and he lay close to death for eleven days, and during those eleven days, he had a vision where he was. Um, where he was swept out of the teepee where he was where he was um battling for his life and he was um taken um into the clouds to the um to the um uh, great cloud teepee of the um of of the spirits the um the elders and um and you know, each one had a different power, but basically, what you get is a Joseph Campbell type of image, where he, um, you know, where a people is where a people is threatened, where the hero is um, um, sent out on a quest, he um, accrues powers and um, and and magical tools, and he comes back, and it's his responsibility to save or redeem his people. And, um, and he, you know, he's, he, he survived that. He survived the bout of, um, meningitis and he remembered the, um, he remembered his vision with crystal clarity. In fact, much of the rest of his life would be, um, would be spent either trying to, um, either trying to like, you know, repeat his role as savior for his people, as he saw in his vision, or when he no longer thought that was possible, at least preserve his vision for late later generations. And so, and so this vision that he had when he was nine would basically become the um, um, uh, the 
would cast the rest of his life. He would he would spend the rest of his life in some way trying to deal with this. And since he never really, I mean, he became a fairly powerful medicine man in t- as time went on. But but since he um, since his people, you know, continued to die off from um, diseases and and reservation life and starvation and this this that the other. Um, he, for the longest time, felt that um, it was his fault because he somehow didn't understand his vision completely. And it's about the, at the same time, or close to the same time, that Black Elk experiences this vision that Americans begin to invade the Black Hills and the area around the Black Hills. And that also brings us to the Battle of Little Bighorn, which you right. describe in some detail in the book, and partially from the perspective of Black Elk himself. So can you tell us a bit about this lead-up to the battle and the battle itself and its place in Black Elk's personal and spiritual life? Well, they lived um, where the where Black Elk's um, band of, um, of Northern Lakota lived was... Um, always close to the Black Hills. And the Black Hills were, um, Sitting Bull um, um, described the Black Hills as, you know, basically um, um, their backpack, their grocery store. I mean, not only was it the um, 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 a holy place for them, but um, it was also a place where in time of um, deprivation, they could go and they could, you know, they could get food and they could get teepee poles and they could get shelter and they could get, you know, everything they pretty much needed. And so it was an important place for them, both spiritually and physically. And, um, and just a couple of years before, um, before the battle of the little bighorn, which was in 1876, um, the United States had, violated its treaty with the Sioux and it had opened up um, the Black Hills. This was like the summer of 1874. And this, this outraged the Sioux. I mean, they, um, they had, um, they had, you know, settled a treaty with the American government after, um, after the, um, after Red Cloud won the Red Cloud's war, a big part of that was that there was this huge Sioux reservation where they would be left, where the Sioux would be left alone. And, and, um, but then gold was discovered in the Black Hills during an expedition led by, um, by Custer. And of course, what that meant was that whites started taking over the Black Hills and that outraged everybody that outraged all of the Lakota. Um, and, um, and, Probably the um, the center of that outrage was a um, was Sitting Bull, who was um, um, uh, um, we all know who Sitting Bull was, but he was also um, a member of one of the um, northern even even far northern tribes of um, of the Lakota, farther north than um, than um, Black Elks Black Elks tribe. He was. Sitting Bull was Hunk Papa, and Sitting Bull was, you know, a natural leader, and he had visions about um, driving the um, driving the 
the whites out of the Black Hills, and we we have to fight because if the whites take the Black Hills, then they're eventually going to exterminate us. And so between 1874 and 1876, there was just growing consolidation among the tribes, and there was this growing outrage, and um, and finally the U.S. Army said, um, which was always trying to get the Indians back on the reservations, said, you all have to be on your reservations. And the, um, and the outraged Lakota said, you know, no, we're not. And um, they headed west into the Powder River. And that was when the, um, the fatal expedition that included Custer um, um, started chasing after them. And despite the Lakota victory at the Battle of Little Bighorn, the years after that battle quickly become a period of crisis for the Lakota and their allies on the Northern Plains. So how did this happen, and how did the various bands and families, including Black Elk's family, how did they respond to this and to the conquest of the Black Hills? Well, they um, the Army wore them down. I mean, they won, but, um, you know, they beat Custer, and they wiped out... Um, um, 200, 200 something men of, of, um, Custer's troop. And it happened during the, um, unfortunately for the Lakota, it happened, um, um, during the American centennial when, you know, the United States was, was celebrating how great and how powerful it was. Um, Mm -hmm. and actually there was the, um, you know, there was the, big American centennial fair that people were going to from all over, at least the East coast. Um, and then here comes this news that Custer had been wiped out and it was, it was a huge shock. I mean, I would say that it was as huge of a shock for the Americans at that time as, um, as Pearl Harbor was or nine 11 was, I mean, and, um, and if you look at our, um, if you look at our, our country, our country's history, you often see that when there's some sort of military or um, um, some or some sort of related disaster like that, at first there's shock and then there's rage. And, um, and, and so the U.S. Army started to ruthlessly hunt down the, um, the Sioux and they, they chased them east across the plains um, up into um, North Dakota and then um, and they just started to starve them out over time so that by 1877 or 1878 um, and of course remember the army was also um, uh, wiping out the buffalo at that time too so basically the, the Sioux were on the run and they were um and they were being starved out, and the only place where they could get any food was on the reservations. And so slowly, um, through 1877 and 1878, um, um, the, uh, the Lakota of the Northern Plains started drifting, started surrendering and drift, drifting back into the, um, into the reservations. And that's what happened with Black Elk. And one of the last holdouts was... Um, was Black Elk's second cousin, Crazy Horse, and there was a lot of controversy around, a lot of politics around Crazy Horse, 
Um, so, um, Crazy Horse was one of the last of the um, of of Black Elk's band to um, to surrender, and in the um, and in the summer of 1877, when he and his people surrendered, um, they surrendered down in, um, in, uh, close to Pine Ridge, where the um, where the Oglala. It's Black Elk's band. We're there on the reservation today. There were a lot of rumors um, swirling around Crazy Horse and um, and, um, and people um, were the, the army and the United States government was still scared of him, thinking that he could be a kind of a bellwether for uh, a rebellion. And um, in September of 1877, he was going to be arrested and he fought back and he was bayoneted and, and he was killed. Um, and he um, and Black Elk was in the crowd when this happened. And once again, that was a huge tragedy. And whereas before the Lakota might have stayed on the reservation, um, after Crazy Horse's assassination that threw a real cog into the works, and a number of um, of Lakota went north um, across what they called the Medicine Line, that was the border between Canada and the United States, and they tried one last time to live, um, you know, the old Free Plains Indian lifestyle up in Canada, but um, but once again. Um, there weren't enough buffalo, and they were starved out. By the late 1870s, early 1880s, everybody went back to the um, reservation. Tell us a little bit about uh, Black Elk and his family's life on the reservation. How did they adjust to all the litany of changes that you just described? And more specifically, how did Black Elk himself, how was he handling the burden of having very regular spiritual experiences throughout this period of his life? Well, it scared him. Um, you know, by the 1880s, he was, uh, um, he was like, um, oh, he was 17, 18. And by this point, you know, he had always believed that, um, he had powers and that his powers were, um, were growing. Um, he seemed to have second sight. Um, he seemed to know things before they were going to, um, happen, especially when it came to, um, hunting with his father or with um with relatives but around the time when he was 17 or 18 he started to hear voices and um and he thought the um the voices were threatening he 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 was he thought the the voices were being told or telling him you've got to do something with your vision you've got to act on your vision or it's not going to go well for you and so he um so he fell into a kind of frenzy, um, which um, is 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 really interesting. I mean, when you're writing when you're writing a book like this too, you've got to remember that um, that even though you know you have to you, as a as the author, I'm always mindful of being respectful of Lakota tradition. Um, I'm also very aware that my audience comes from a um, um, from a Western scientific tradition where where you know if somebody's hearing voices they're crazy. Well, you know the 
the um, in in the native tradition, that's not necessarily so. The um, if you're hearing voices, they mean something, and they're a visitation from um, from you know an, from um, another dimension from the spirits, and um, and so um, so Black Elk was scared to death that he was not fulfilling his promise and he was going to be exterminated. And so by the early 1880s, he was visiting um, medicine men within his tribe and, and, and uh, begging for help. And he told them about the vision really for the first time. And, and, and that's kind of interesting because the medicine men in his tribe, I mean, if you look at it, the medicine men in his tribe are really acting in a spiritual way, they're acting very much like um, psychologists or psychologists or psychiatrists. This is this is what's the matter. This is what you've got to do. And at least within the Oglala tradition, um, if you have been chosen by the gods, then you have to act out your dreams. And so Black Elk um, started acting out his different portions of his vision. Um, and, um, and since he acted them out, these, these were, in, um, um, elaborately staged dances, um, and almost, almost cinematic and, and, um, the way that the whole tribe would, um, would participate. Um, his reputation as a, um, as a holy man grow, grew, and then he also, um, very probably became because he came from a, you know, his father was a medicine man. Um, he um, um, started to uh, develop a reputation as a healer as well. In fact, part of his um, vision included some um, oh, um, medical recipes, it seems. And um, so during the 1880s, which was the first full decade of the reservation period for the Lakota, um, and it, they were cooped up on the, um, on the reservation. They were forced to eat, um, uh, stringy beef, which, um, which didn't always arrive on time. They were subject to all of the white diseases. Whooping cough was killing off all these kids. Um, he became a, um, he became a healer. And it was during the 1880s that, um, that his reputation as a, um, as a as a as a healer as a medicine man grew so basically it went from eight early 1880s where he feared for his life because he didn't know how to deal with these with these um voices to the late 1880s where he um he grew in confidence and and power as a healer what brought Black Elk into contact with Buffalo Bill Cody and his Wild West show? That's another pivotal moment in the young man's life. And so how did that happen? And what was his experience as a member of this traveling show? Well, he joined up, I think it was, let me look at my timeline here. It was, um, he joined up with um, uh, Buffalo Bill in fall of 1886. And, um, and he, um, uh, Cody had had already started his um, his uh, Wild West show um, by then. Um, he only by that point um, he um, 
was only going through the U.S. He had this disastrous showdown in New Orleans, I think it was, where you know all of his stock and um, um, was on a riverboat and it capsized and he lost everything. Um, and at that point, the only Indian performers he had were the Pawnee. But um, um, Cody had, you know, Cody over over the years, many of these. Many of these guys who fought against the Indians, I mean, they came to know and respect the Indians over time. And over the years, I mean, he got to know several of the Sioux elders. And um, and in eight, fall of 1886, he um, actually in the spring of 1886, he kind of let it be known at Pine Ridge Reservation that, um, you know, I, I, I want to... Um, go across the country and have these wild west shows where you know i've got the um indians charging in and uh, fighting the the army and um and by then black elk who was always curious about all spiritual matters was thinking several things he was saying well the whites um the whites have have beaten us and they've, they've put us on the reservations and and um, and the source of their power must be, um, might be their white God. Well, okay, maybe I can go to the source of the, um, to the source of the power, the cities, and see, um, um, what is, um, what is so good about the, um, about the white God. And by that point, you know, various, um, various religious denominations had started to, um, come into the reservations and, and, um, you know, have, um, established churches and established schools and various, various reservations across the, across the United States. And so Black Elk, by the mid 1880s, had some, um, exposure to, by that, that point, it probably, it would have been the Episcopalians and also the Catholics, so the Catholics weren't officially ensconced in the Pine Ridge Reservation. So he was interesting. He, he was interested. He was always, he was always very curious about all sorts of religions. And, um, and he was also a young man and he, this was a chance to go across the country with his buddies. All of his buddies were going across the country and, um, and, um, so he, 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 he took off with, you know, this, this big contingent of, um, of young Sioux guys. And they, um, they first went to Chicago, I think it was, and then they went to New York. And then while they were in, and, um, um, they went to Madison Square Gardens and they were a huge hit. And, um, and Black Elk was amazed by everything he saw. And while... This would have been like 1886, 1887. Um, and in spring of 1887, Cody was, um, Cody got a contract to um, take his Wild West show to the um, Golden Jew, over to London to the Golden Jubilee of um, Queen Victoria. She'd been on the throne for 50 years and, um, and performers from across the world were coming to perform. And so, this was a big coup for Cody, so he um, he loaded every everything on a, a steamer, um, including his buffalo and elk and horses, and um, they t- took off on a 
10 to 14 day cruise across the, uh, it wasn't really a cruise, it was pretty horrendous, um, across the Atlantic and, and blackout performed in London um, and throughout England through 1887, 1888 with Cody's um, Wild West. He also danced before the Queen. That's one of the high points of blackout speeds. Which brings us to 1890, which was, of course, another crucial and tragic year for the Lakotas since uh, in that December, the U.S. Army massacred over 200 men, women, and children at Wounded Knee. What was Black Elk's relationship to the ghost dance religion, which was one of the precipitating events or, or movements that led to that massacre? And then how did the massacre itself affect him and his family? Well, he, he had come back and um, he had, he actually, he and um, Black Elk and three, um, three of his friends um, had accidentally missed the boat um, when Cody came back to the United States. And there were, there were other Wild West shows, competitive, competing Wild West shows in, um, in um, Europe and in, in, Eng- in England by that time. And so they joined up with the summit. Um, they joined uh, Black Elk and his friends joined up with this group called the Mexican Joe, the Mexican Joe Wild West, and um, it was um, it was pretty awful. Um, people were trying to kill each other, and, and there were crashing stage coaches, and um, and he got progressively sicker. And when um, when um, Black when Cody and he also fell in love with a Parisian girl and he was um, in Paris in um, May of 1889 when Cody um, um, has his presents his Wild West show in Paris for the first time and he was there for the exposition which pretty much um, introduced the Eiffel Tower and Black Elk shows up and says, "Remember me," and everybody gives him a you know big party. And uh, but he's and Cody says, "Do you want to stay with me or do you want to go back home?" And um, Black Black Elk says, "I'm homesick. I want to go back home." Um, and I've also been a little bit sick. And um, and so uh, Cody buys him a ticket and sends him right back home. And he shows up and. Um, shows up in Pine Ridge around the time that this messianic messianic movement, um, the ghost dance religion, is sweeping um, through um, plains tribes across the West, pretty much um, from um, down around the Paiutes, down in Utah, Nevada, and then um, to the northeast through the upper plains and um and there are a lot of there are a lot of um um tribes that adopted the ghost dance and it was basically um it was basically the same sort of messianic movements that has um that have you see in um in christianity since time immemorial um if you believe um um in the message of the Messiah, if you do certain things, in this case, dance, um, dance the ghost dance, then at a certain time, um, um, your enemies will, um, 
will be swept off the face of the earth or will dis disappear, leaving only, um, you know, the chosen ones, in this case, the, the Plains Indians, um, and um, and their life will, ret will return to a golden age. And um, and this, the, Sioux, the Sioux embraced it um, to, to a large extent, especially the Oglala, which was... Um, um, Black Elk specific tribe, and he resisted it. He res he resisted it for a while because I mean he was always very critical about um, about religions. I mean he was a at the same time that he was a spiritual seeker. I mean he was he was in his own way he was kind of a religious scholar, um, but he kept seeing all of these convergences between his his great vision and the um and the 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 ghost dance religion and so he um so he he, he finally um became a ghost dance priest and um and the um u.s army and so this would have been like 1889 1890 and the um the u.s army was always still scared of the sioux and so when they saw them um beginning to embrace the ghost dance religion they felt uh-oh we're going to have um the, the sioux are going to um be rejuvenated they're going to um, we're going to have another fight on our hands and and what happened was that the army was called out and um and eventually led to the massacre of wounded knee and as you say in the book, we don't know a whole lot about Black Elk's life in the years immediately after the massacre. So tell us what we do know. And then when his memoir picks back up again in the early 20th century, what is his life like and what struggles is he facing at that period? Well, his memoir, Black Elk Speaks, at least ends in with, um, with his, his participation in, the, in um, the Wounded Knee Massacre. He wasn't there when... Um, when um, it you know when it started, but he was there with a bunch of his friends trying to save women and children um, who were running away from the um, soldiers who were slaughtering them in a frenzy afterwards. So, um, so um, you know he 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 watched the aftermath of that. Uh, one of the more powerful. Um, passages in Black Elk Speaks and also in his um, also in his oral interviews is just, you know, him coming down to the um, coming down to the killing fields and seeing all these dead women and children and having survivors killed and saying, why am I still alive? And um, and Wounded Knee was like December 1890 and you don't really hear a lot about Black Elk um in 1891 in fact you don't a lot of a lot of various a lot of various um uh, lakota that that you're aware of they kind of drop off the face of the map during this period except for the ones who were high up in the ghost dance and they get sent off to prison um and then a bunch of them eventually go on and perform with buffalo bill again but Black Elk kind of disappears, and and um, you kind of get the idea that he went underground because he didn't want to be sent off to prison with a lot of the other ghost dance um, priests. 
but by um, by 1890, um, I'd say about sense of what Black Elk's relationship was like to Catholicism after his conversion? I think he was a man on fire for the first um, for the first um, 10 years of that. I mean, up until um, up until about 1916, he supposedly converted um, um, 400 Indians across the plains and maybe even up in Canada. He um, he became friends with a young Catholic priest who called him a um, who called him 
an Indian St. Paul, and he pretty much went across the West converting um, um, Native souls to Catholicism. Um, I think that, um, um, and I think, and and, and he, um, although he never really, there was always an underground of other, of, of traditional holy men. He never seemed to, um, to turn them in, um, to betray them. But at least during this period, 1904 to 1916, I mean, he bought into the, um, into the being a Catholic late, late minister, um, heart and soul. I mean, he cut his hair, he started wearing suits, he would um, appear at the bedside of dying Lakota with a priest or without a priest, if there, because there were always very few priests out there in the plains, to um, give extreme unction to dying Lakota. And, um, and, um, and, you know, he was so effective that at least in the um, uh, latter part of the 20th century, anybody who knew Blackout didn't really remember him as um, a traditional holy man. They remembered him more as a um, as a Catholic lay priest. But then by by, uh, by 1916, something seemed to happen again, and he started to see that well, you know, the cat. Catholicism wasn't wasn't saving his people. They were still dying, and so he he started. At, as of nineteen sixteen, the evidence seems to show that he um, became more ecumenical. He um, he was still Catholic, but he was also um, he returned to um, the old ways, and he um, started training the um, the next generation of uh, Lakota holy men, including his um, his nephew who wrote about him, Frank, uh, felt by the name of Frank Fool's Crow, um, who, who wrote about Black Elk during that period. So, I mean, he, once again, he was switching religiously, spiritually during all of this time. And when Black Elk is in his, uh, I think his early 70s, he meets a poet, a, a Great Plains poet by the name of John Nyhart, who you alluded to earlier. And uh, Nyhart had arrived at Black Elk's home to hear the old man's story. So right. tell us a bit about Nyhart and about what drew him to Black Elk and then what came of their meeting. Well, he, he actually, Black Elk, um, so Black Elk met Nyhart in 1930. So Black Elk would have been... Um, 60 by about that time and and a lot of his um a lot of his old friends were dying off and black elk um had been diagnosed with tuberculosis and um he thought to himself you know i'm not very long for this world and um and um the great unresolved question of my life is this um is this great vision and i've done what i could to um, adhere to the great vision, but I've I failed my people somehow. So it's my job to um, it's my job to pass the great vision on to the next generation. And so Nyhart, so you got this, you know, these two guys cross paths. Nyhart was um, by 1930. Nyhart was a pretty well known figure on the. Um, 
on the plains. He wrote these long epic poems about the um, the winning and then the disappearance of the West. He called them his songs, and he had like, a song cycle. And um, and he had just written a um, he had just published a, a song cycle about the death of um, about the death of about Little Bighorn and then the death of Crazy Horse. And he wanted to do something about the ghost dance. That was going to pretty much be the end. And um, and by now it had started to leak out. This was 50 years or so after, um, or more after the Little Bighorn. And historians all over the West were starting to realize that, you know, we talked to all of the, um, we talked to all of these old timers who, you know, may have survived the Little Bighorn um, um with Reno's command, but we never really talked to the Indians all that much. And so these historians started going out and getting these oral histories and people started to figure out through detective work that black elk had been the second cousin of crazy horse. And they started coming to him and he turned, he had turned down a couple of, um, offers of, um, of interviews about crazy horse. He just didn't feel like, you know, he, he trusted the people, I don't guess. Um, and, um, and Nyhart appears, um, at Pine Ridge Reservation during the summer of 1930. And he says to the, um, he says to the, um, government agent in charge, is there any, are there any old ghost dance priests around? And, um, and the, um, the agent says, well, my friends tell me, my, my Lakota friends here tell me there's this old man who lives up north of Wounded Knee, um, who had been a kind of a priest. Um, and, um, and so Nyhart and Nyhart and his son, um, they'd been on a reading out to the West. Um, Nyhart and his son go up to Black Elk's house. Black Elk is just kind of standing out there seemingly waiting for, for them. It's dusty out there. I'm sure he would have, Black Elk would have seen the dust plume coming, um, um, from, miles away and from Nyhart's car and um and he um and Black Elk took to him I mean um Nyhart had had some um uh, uh, visions of his own during two near-death experiences that he um that he had had and um he explained that you know he was a poet and um and and Black Elk seemed to see in Nyhart a way of, um, if he told his story, that he would have a way of preserving his, his great vision. And so he pretty much, um, said, yeah, you come back in a, a year and I'll have a, um, teaching space, um, set up for you. And, um, but I'm only going to do it if you spend, um, a, cons- a considerable, considerable amount of time on my vision and I hard agreed to that at the same time that he wanted to tell the story of the um of the of the ghost dance um so a year later Nyhart shows up with his two daughters and Black Elk's son is there who's going to act as a translator his son Ben had been to the Indian school in Carlisle Pennsylvania and um so he knew English and um, and for a month, Black Elk basically told his story from birth until wounded knee. 
and then a little bit afterwards. But um, Nyhart, um, Fash, and they, they spent a long time on his um, great vision. And Nyhart um, came away from that, um, you know, three and a half week oral interview. Um, really excited. He went to William Morris um, um, and William Morrow, um, his uh, publisher in New York, and he said, I've got really got something here. And, um, and so he fashioned, um, he fashioned um, Black Elk Speaks out of that. And Black Elk dies um, a couple decades later in 1950. Can you tell us a little bit about the final years of his life and more generally about his legacy and the legacy of Black Elk Speaks, the the book that came out of his and Nyhart's meetings? Well, he, um, okay, so, I mean, Black Elk was, when he died in 1950, been around since 1863 so what was he he was 87 years old i mean he was an old man especially by reservation standards because so many people had died from um had died from disease and everything and 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 just think of the incredible changes that he had witnessed i mean he'd been around the world he uh had been around the country he um you know he was a literate man so he was very aware of um um you know jets and war and space age and all that kind of stuff i mean you know the guy had had witnessed incredible changes uh, but he had tuberculosis and in his later years he became more debilitated and um and um he it you know as as um everybody does when they um get older and sicker he kind of sank within himself and he would um and he would spend long periods of time um, on a hilltop, um, either repeating the um, uh, the Catholic catechism or um, praying to the to the old Lakota gods. And he, he mixed them up a lot because to him they were really very much one and the same. Um, and because they had so many convergences, the two types of um, spiritual t- traditions had so many convergences and um and he would occasionally have these visions and and he um before he died he told his um he told his um daughter and his son watching the skies um something um something interesting might happen um and the night that he died the aurora borealis um um, uh, put on this huge show, right? greater than um, um, it ever had that far south before. And you might think, oh, that's just kind of like oral embellishment at the end of his story. But but um, um, it was either Sky and Telescope or um, one of the other um, one of the other astronomical magazines at that time had these articles about how amazing the um, how amazing the sky show was on that night, and how because the um, because the um, um, because the fireworks went on for so long um, at such intensity that for the first time um, land instruments were to were able to pick up, you know, readings about um, radiation and stuff like that that they'd never been able to 
do so before. So, I mean, it, you know, so it really happened. And by that point, he was respected by the younger traditional medicine men in, um, in uh, Pine Ridge. They pretty much, I mean, you know, the traditional ways were still severely throughout frowned upon by both the um, the Catholics and by the U.S. government, so it was all underground. But um, but he um, but you know he was he was a um, he was an example. He was a model for this um, for this younger generation. And as far as Black Elk Speaks went, Black Elk Speaks was published in 1931. And um, it was just a little bit too strange for the American reading public. And so it went into remainders really fast. But, um, but it had a following. And in the later 1930s, the, um, the, um, the, the famous dream psychologist, Carl Jung, was, um, was lecturing about... Um, was about was lecturing about dreams and psychology and and um and legend and that kind of stuff over at Yale and somebody brought him a copy of Blackout Speaks and he was really excited by it he was he thought to himself this is this is a, an example of the real real thing this is where you know the great religions come from and um you know he believed that um Jung would write that um that all of our religious traditions come from what he would call the universal unconscious, which we tapped into in dreams. And um, so he went back to Germany and um, in Switzerland. He was Swiss. And, um, and he tried to get it published in German. But World War II intervened. And then after World War II, he was able to get it published by a, um, by a German publisher. 1955 and then as often happens um, um, American scholars kind of because of Jung they rediscovered what they had in their own backyard and by 1961 Black Elk Speaks was um, was re re published and it was slowly um, embraced by the counterculture but then, in 1968, by the later 1960s, you know the counterculture and the green movement were um, were in full swing. Um, with the other book that was big at that time, D. Brown's "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," um, it became you know one of the um, two Bibles of the resurgent. Um, um, native spiritual movement, especially among people who wanted to be native, mostly um, white hippies and um, and later New Age people. And then in 1973, there was Wounded Knee too, and it became even more famous after that. So it has been pretty famous ever since then. So as uh, this interview has made pretty apparent, Black Elk lived a very long and a fascinating life, and and he witnessed a number of critical events in American and Lakota history. Um, And as such, this is a long and a fascinating book as well. Um, But 
if you were to distill the book down and maybe hope that there was one takeaway that readers came away from the book with, what might that be, Joe? And that, that's a good question. I've often wondered that myself. You're not the first person who's asked that. I mean, huh. you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, I started out writing the book trying to, um, trying to answer the question of what is it that makes a holy man? And, and I'm not sure if I, if anybody has ever, um, has ever answered that question about, you know, any of the holy men that are, are, um, or the spiritual leaders that are out there, what draws people to them? But I do think that what you see is that in the, um, in the face of, um, all the things that happen to an embattled people that somebody like Black Elk um, just um, just endures and kind of like stays the course and stays on the message and endures. And even though Black Elk had, um, um, you know, multiple tragedies in his life and, um, you know, wit- witnessed you know, many people whom he loved die and watch the watch his you know tribe grow sicker and smaller. Um, he never really seemed to give up, and he never really seemed to um, um, break away from the feeling that a um, that a personal creed or a personal holiness. Um, trumped all else, that it, in the end, was um, one of the most important things in life. And I, 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 I think that if you look at other religions, you kind of see that, a, a um, kind of quiet determination and endurance in the face of, you know, multiple obstacles. So now that the book has been out for a couple of years, what have you been working on since then? Do you have another project coming down the line at all? Well, I've got a, I've got a um, manuscript um, deadline of May 2020. I'm, I, uh, um, in this case, you know how I said that I um, kind of take um, unfinished business from the last book. Um, so now I'm doing this um, long narrative of um, the Spanish-American and Philippine-American Wars of 1898 through 1902. And I'm following several people through it, and um, and that was an important it was an important war because you know we went from being basically um, you know um, enclosed little United States to um, a colonial power, um, and um, and what started out you know the six weeks of war as a splendid little war. Um, and um, in Cuba turns into this long, horrendous slog in the Philippines where people, many people's um, spirits were, um, were, were broken. And there was a lot of controversy. In many ways, it was very much like Vietnam. Um, there was a lot of protest and a lot of people came back with what today would be called PTSD. And, um, and um, so I'm re- and there's a lot of um, going to lots of archives. I've, um, I followed some people's footsteps across Cuba. I um, drove in a 1955 Ford Fairlane across Cuba. Um, um, I followed um, uh, pr- 
Private Carl Sandberg's footsteps across Puerto Rico when he was a um, when he was a, um, a, a mere private before he was even the poet Carl Sandberg. And I'm shooting for going to the Philippine, Philippines in March to get the point of view of some of the rebels over there. That sounds great. And those are events that I feel like not enough Americans know in any kind of depth. So yeah, good and it's like, that. And it's like Manifest Destiny all over again, except yeah. that in this case, instead of being just within the United States against the Indians, it's like, you know, across the world. Well, great. We look forward to it. Well, thank you. I have, I have to write it still. <laughs> Joe Jackson is formerly the Mina Hohenberg Darden Endowed Professor of Creative Writing at Old Dominion University and has had a long career as an investigative journalist and as a nonfiction writer. His most recent book, Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary, came out with Farrar, Strauss, and Drew in 2016 and in 2017 won the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, Joe. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. 